Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to... Kathleen Powell, Curator of the St. Catharines Museum and Supervisor of Historical Services. Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah, Public Programmer at the St. Catharines Museum. A special welcome back to our regular listeners to Museum Chat Live, and a happy Series 2 to my podcast colleagues here at the museum. Yay, Series 2! We're recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, which we acknowledge is part of the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples and adjacent to the territories of the Six Nations of the Grand River. Today's podcast episode is dedicated to the upcoming first edition of our fall 2017 Books and Brews season. We'll be chatting about Thomas King's Green Grass, Running Water, the first book on our book club list this season, and twisting up how we think about storytelling. Buckle your seatbelts, this is going to be a wild ride. (laughs) So, first, Books and Brews. Have you heard of it? It's our super fun museum book club that mixes unique museum experiences with a great book discussion and fantastically tasty brews. We've partnered with Brock University's History Department and our dear friends at Mate Cafe and Lounge to bring this different kind of museum experience to you. Books and Brews is also a chance for us to experiment with new types of programming, storytelling, and museum-y things. Museums are always evolving and building on the ways we share history with the public. And Books and Brews provides us with the perfect platform to take a few risks with what we offer the public. So, in light of 2017 marking Canada's 150th, the Fall of 2017 series of Books and Brews will reflect on Canadian identity and explore a little more critically into what it means to be Canadian. Books and Brews will read a series of three Canadian literary works written by a diverse set of authors. We have a female author, an Indigenous author, and a French-Canadian author. And these will bring new voices, new perspectives, and new experiences into our understanding of Canadianness. We continue to mark Canada's 150, and we need to make space to ask some critical questions. So let's get asking. But first, a few words about our upcoming programs. When was the last time you visited the museum? Between soccer practice, art classes, piano lessons, and going back to school, we know it can be tough. That's why we've decided to keep our doors open late. Between Victoria Day and Thanksgiving, the museum stays open until 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings, every week. Drop by to see a ship traverse the Welland Canal, check out our community-curated exhibit 150, and find a perfect gift for that special occasion coming up at our gift shop, Merritt's Mercantile. See you at the museum! On Friday, October 6th, the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre will host First Fridays, a museum social event presented by the Museums of Niagara Association. But this is no regular event. This is the Night of the Walking Dead. Dum-dum-dum. To find out more, and to buy tickets in advance, visit the website firstfridaysniagara.ca. Imagine a well-dressed Victorian lady sitting in her parlor reading a newspaper article about how her husband, a leading local politician, is against a new national idea, Confederation. 
Can you imagine the debates and arguments in her home and on the streets? How would you feel if you landed on the wrong side of history? How might Emma Curry, wife of Lieutenant Colonel John G. Curry, have felt as her husband resigned his seat on the Legislative Council in 1865 over the issues of Confederation? Our 2017 annual Guided Spirit Walks at Victoria Lawn Cemetery will challenge audiences to reconsider the history of Confederation so many of us hold dear. Volunteer actors bring history to life as audiences are guided to the headstones and gravesites of important players in a very St. Catherine story of the creation of One Dominion. Tours run September 8th, 9th, 15th, and 16th at Victoria Lawn Cemetery in St. Catharines. For tickets and information, please call the museum at 905-984-8880. Okay, I says, let's get started. Is it time to apologize, says Coyote? Not yet, I says. Is it time to be helpful, says Coyote? I can be very helpful. Forget being helpful, I says. Sit down and listen. So, for the first installment of the fall 2017 round of Books and Brews, we are reading Thomas King's Green Grass Running Water. For a little bit of context, I'll read the synopsis I found on goodreads.com. Strong, sassy women and hard luck, hard-headed men, all searching for the middle ground between Native American tradition and the modern world, perform an elaborate dance of approach and avoidance in this magical, rollicking tale by Cherokee author Thomas King. Alberta is a university professor who would like to trade her two boyfriends for a baby but no husband. Lionel is 40 and still sells televisions for a patronizing boss. Eli and his log cabin stand in the way of a profitable dam project. These three and others are coming to the Blackfoot Reservation for the Sundance, and there they will encounter four Indian elders and their companion, the trickster Coyote, and nothing in the small town of Blossom will be the same again. There are lots of really interesting themes running through the book, including the clash between the modern world and the Native American traditions, religion and interpretation, feminism, storytelling, and the unreliability of narrators. I read King's book in a second year undergraduate course, and let me tell you, my second reading of this novel widely differs from my first. I want to start by briefly asking Kathleen what she thought of the novel. <laughs> Uh, this is my first read of this uh, novel. I had read another book uh, by Thomas King, uh, which I really enjoyed quite a bit. And um, I thought it was a really interesting book. I was a bit confused about what was going on for a good chunk of the book. Uh, but now that I've heard more and read more, it makes a little bit more sense, if that actually makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and um, I really enjoyed the book. Either way, whether I understood what was going on or not, I actually enjoyed the book. It was an interesting story uh, and a really interesting way of telling the story. Um, but uh, it was definitely something that needed thinking on after you were finished reading it, as opposed to you get it right away. It has lots of depth to it. Definitely. I found myself really reflecting after every so often I would just have to put it down and just think about what I was reading about. I really, really appreciated the way that Thomas King tells stories. I find it very thoughtful and very pr provocative. I like how throughout the book he was constantly playing on kind of what we think is like literary or cinema cinematic 
classics like the John Wayne movies and Robinson Crusoe and Moby Dick, for example. He was constantly playing with those ideas that we kind of consider like mainstream and kind of turning them on their on his head. And I really I enjoyed that a lot. And it kind of made me have to go back and rethink about what those books were about and what those movies were about. And he changed my idea of what they meant. I liked that too. It makes you think about what your preconceived ideas already are about people in general. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about um, First Nations, which this book is about, but you it kind of made me think about what are my preconceived ideas about things in general. So when I start to read a book, you know, sometimes in your head you're reading a book and it's like a movie in your head. You see what you think it's supposed to look like. And when you're reading a book, this book, you see in your head what you think it's supposed to look like, which I think is really interesting because he's trying to turn that whole idea on its head that, you know, a person who is of First Nations uh, ancestry doesn't look like John Wayne, uh, a John Wayne movie, essentially. It's but that's what you see in your head as far as, like, the movie running in your head while you're reading. I did not read the book yet. Um, <laughs> I've been busy with our second Books and Brews book called The Diviners by Margaret Lawrence, and it's a bit of a read. Um, but I have read Thomas King's other, uh, one of his other books called The Inconvenient Indian, and it is a work of nonfiction. Um, and he does a similar thing, or has a similar talent and skill where he makes you think about your own perspectives and feelings about people, about indigenous relations, particularly in that book. Um, and I remember, I read it probably, I want to say, two years ago, and I remember thinking about it for at least a good six months afterwards. It was definitely a book um, that had a big impact on my own perspective of not just indigenous relations in this country or in the or in North America or the history of that, but uh, more about people and how people treat other people. There's one particular story about um, him him getting hate mail um, in Alberta when his family was living in Alberta um, in Calgary or something like this, and it was like a, flyers to uh, alerting everyone that there was a, a, an indigenous family living in the community. And uh, it was just a terrible story, but he told it really well with humor. And I feel like that's uh, a, a keystone to his to his writing. Um, and from what I've heard so far from Sarah's re- Sarah's searching for a, uh, a quote to read in this podcast <laughs> um, and uh, from Sarah talking about it and from Kathy talking about it, humor is a, an important part of his storytelling. I think so. I think that. Uh, the humor is there and it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek kind of humor in a lot of places Uh, but when you actually really start to think about it you're like oh my gosh that humor was really kind of masking this this story that why don't we all know about this and why are how can we have been so blind to what has happened uh, to the First Nations communities in Canada over the last two centuries or more. Mm-hmm. So it it's uh it's a really lighthearted way to look at a very deep story. And I think what I appreciate about his use of humor is that you still get the political nuances of his storytelling. It's just in a way that we're not used to. And I, I really appreciate that. I think it's 
it, that's what causes us to think so much when we read his work. Um, but for example, humor was such a large part of the of Green Grass Running Water, but at the same time, he talked about a lot of serious political things. For example, like the dam that um, Eli's log cabin was kind of sitting in between. Like, that's a very reality that happens a lot on First Nations lands. And um, the way he talked about it and the conversations that were happening uh, with the cabin and around that, there was some humor through that that I think made it a little bit more... I think humor makes it easier to digest those hard conversations and especially for people who might not, who might like refuse to listen to it otherwise. I think humor is a very smart way to um, address those things largely. Yeah, I agree. I also think that he made it a real humanness to the story by mm-hmm. by making it about the people and not so much about the politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really makes you see that behind politics in general, there's always a person or people who are being affected by these things. And sometimes we tend to forget that in the the grand story you know the big political story the big political players uh, you tend to forget that still behind that there's a person sitting in a house mm-hmm. who's going to be impacted by whatever decision the politics are uh, are going to to have sarah has been um sharing some uh, recordings of thomas king luckily thomas king talks a lot that's the terrible thing because <laughs> he even in this one recording i was just recently recently listening to this morning actually he was saying that he's getting tired of his own voice um, but luckily <laughs> he appears on the cbc often and so we have a good understanding of where he's coming from um and in one recording that you sent uh sarah that you sent today i think today um I forget the name of the program. What's that program called? It's called Unreserved, and it's hosted by Rosanna Deerchild yes. on CBC. He was talking about how humor can actually sharpen um, the tragedy um, mm-hmm. by by masking and then revealing uh, quite suddenly the the tragedy and the the um, the trauma of of actual um, events, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. and how people uh, how people have reacted to that. Yeah, I thought that uh, we also, which we're going to talk about shortly, we also listened to the Massey Lectures of Thomas King. uh, And there were points in those Massey Lectures where he said something and you can hear the audience all like laughing and thinking this is all great. And all of a sudden it's like wham with the the factual um, tragedy behind the uh, the humor and it was dead silence and it's... It does have, you need to have that humor somewhat to uh, maybe find a, a, a way to process it that is manageable to a lot of people. Not that we shouldn't make people feel um, that they're stepping outside of their comfort level, but I think that, uh, you know, the humor definitely helps. Um, one, I haven't read the book. <laughs> Just a second reminder, <laughs> representing those people who haven't read the book yet. Um but I was wondering if, without giving too much away, Kathy, I was wondering if you could talk more about um, why it made you think, like what you had to think about when reading the book. I think that uh, it's interesting because normally I try not to um, 
to get too caught up in historical details when I read fiction because as a historian I find it gets very frustrating because you're like no this never happened and this wasn't like this and they're just totally twisting history around for their fiction so I try not to get caught up in that I try to just read fiction to enjoy fiction Um, and well I did enjoy this book quite a bit it was a it was a great read it was quite light and uh, um, it was a, a a really interesting book to read through and the stories were really interesting of the people but uh it was the having time to digest it afterwards and think about things that i already know about canadian history and how we've treated first nations people over uh, our history um, things i had learned over the years about um how different uh communities are represented in fiction or in movies or um, in popular culture in general and how that can have an impact on um, on politics and life and so it was almost like I needed a couple of weeks to have it sink in a little bit to really make me think about yeah you know what I, I learned this other thing in another time and place and it's so relevant to uh, how I'm kind of synthesizing the information in this book uh it also helps that at the end of this book thomas king put together a kind of a almost like a bibliography of sources of where all of the references come from because you don't pick them all up right away while you're reading and then when you go back and you read it and you're like oh yeah of course i knew about last of the mohicans and um and the character of hawkeye in um in those that fiction and but you don't really think about it while you're reading the book because you're reading a story about a bunch of people that are really just really interesting at least that's the way I read fiction so uh, I don't know Sarah if you feel the same had this had the same experience uh once I knew there was the annotations at the back (laughs) of the book (laughs) I almost honestly I went back there so many times as I was reading the book to say oh I wonder if that's a a reference to something and I was always hoping that there was annotations for almost everything (laughs) 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 Uh, but I thought that was it was really really smart the way he he wrote those in right and he would give names to characters like um he would reference Pauline Johnson at one point he who um was an indigenous author artist artist so pauline johnson and um and just so so many names that he gave his characters were references to something historical whether it was um actually happened in history or in our pop culture or in literary fiction or anything like that and um i really appreciated that i think it made me think again as we've been talking about about uh kind of things that are in our mainstream with fiction and things like that and how those could be problematic and I, I really appreciated that and I loved going back to the uh, the annotations at the back and you kind of get more into his mind space too I find and you really do appreciate how much thought he puts into his writing too right yeah I, for sure yeah I really appreciated that yeah because when you're reading the book it's essentially it's it's four chapters with the same story told over and over 
at the start of it and throughout it. And then on top of that is this story that weaves through of the main characters in the book. Mm -hmm. So you hear this, these four chapters that kind of tell this creation legend in four different ways, essentially. And so you don't think too much about it. You're not really thinking depth as you're reading that because you think you know it, what's going on. But then as you read these annotations and you, you, find out how much more thought was put into names of characters, places that are noted, um, where things are, are situated in the book. It, it adds more and it really makes you think more as you go along personally. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. my, my experience. I think that um, I took something from the, the Matsy uh, thing. He says that story, people take from stories what they want Mm-hmm. And what they want to take, how they'll, they will interpret them. And I think that this book was excellent from that perspective. So I think it's really important that um, we link to the interviews that we've been talking about when discussing Thomas King's book so that you can hear the interviews for yourself and so that we can give space for the interview and their voices and stuff. Um, so we are going to link to Rosanna Deerchild's interview with Thomas King to uh, the CBC podcast on Unreserved, just so you can have a listen. It's about 40 minutes, and it really helps get into the mindset of Thomas King's writing, and it's quite funny, too, and since we've been talking about humor and stuff, I think it's a definitely worth a listen, so we'll definitely link that to the blog for sure. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has commissioned the annual Massey Lectures since 1961. Today, the CBC Massey Lectures are the product of a collaboration of three partners, CBC Radio, the House of Anansi Press, and Massey College at the University of Toronto. Each fall, the lectures are delivered on university campuses in five cities across Canada. The CBC Massey Lectures have established their place as a Canadian institution and an annual highlight of our national intellectual life. In his 2003 Massey Lecture, award-winning author and scholar Thomas King looks at the breadth and depth of Native experience and imagination. Beginning with Native oral stories, King weaves his way through literature and history, religion and politics, popular culture and social protest, in an effort to make sense of North America's relationship with its Indigenous peoples. So in preparation for today's podcast, I asked my wonderful colleagues to do a bit of homework for us, which was to listen to Thomas King's Massey lectures all five hours, which not all of us did. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't read the book. I didn't listen to all the Massey lectures. Why am I even here? Uh, So what I wanted to uh, start with first, I want to just premise with everyone should go and listen to the 2003 Massey Lectures with Thomas King. They are extremely enlightening and will really, they really tie into uh, the green grass running water that we read for Books and Brews and also just generally for your, your knowledge and interest. You should definitely check out those lectures. And I just wanted to start today by asking generally, um, what did we take away from the lectures? What was the biggest thing that you took away from Thomas King's talking? First, can I just say something about Thomas King's talking is really disarming. He's just so, like, relaxed. Mm-hmm. You know? He's not there, like, talking at you. He's actually really good at, like, again, I from this other recording that we were listening to, he's tired of the sound of his own voice, but he's really good at, like, showing you perspective and getting you on his side easily. Because he's just, just chill. Something about him. 
I could listen to them all day. Mm-hmm. Although I didn't. I didn't listen to the five hours. I listened to the one. <laughs> but, you know, I could listen to him again and again and again. And I think that's one of the reasons his writing is so popular, because it comes from a similar place. I do feel like he. it's just a conversation. It felt like a conversation, even though obviously it was only one-sided, because I was just, uh, you know, listening, not having a conversation with him but it felt that way and it his I agree with you he's the way he speaks and his tone is uh is very relaxed and um it puts you at ease and I think that definitely makes people much more comfortable to to hear the message that's that's being he's not proselytizing so I don't want to make it out like that at all um I just think it's a just a really light but deep um way that he he puts his message across and I recommend highly the book that we spoke about earlier, The Inconvenient Indian, uh, which is a really a bit of an uncomfortable book to read as uh, someone who comes from a European background. And uh, uh, for me to read that book, it was quite uncomfortable. But the way he writes it is is so great that um, that it, it it's very much something I recommend to everyone who is a Canadian person to read because it enlightens you so much about the things that have happened in our country that you probably don't realize. I think our American friends could probably benefit from it as well because it's a cross-border story. Definitely. Yeah, cross-border yeah. story. And there's actually a lot of, not to get sidetracked into that book, but there's a lot of American history that I didn't know about mm-hmm. that I had to sort of look up a little bit to understand some of the context, like... Um, you know, the big one with Colonel, not Colonel Mustard. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the, what the library with the Yeah, Colonel Mustard. Library. No, what am I thinking of? <laughs> you know, the you know, uh, Custard Last Stand? Yeah. Custer's Last Stand, is that the one I'm thinking? Um, is his name Custard? Custer. 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 Oh. Wow. Custer's last name. I'm really bad, but anyway. Talking about wounded knees. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm a paid historian, everybody. <laughs> anyway, American history is not my field, so he does talk a lot. The there yeah, he yeah. does talk a lot in uh, the Massey lectures. Actually, he does go back and forth, and he recognizes in the in his uh, talk that uh, borders are illusions. Mm. Really, mm. those borders are created by some political document that really takes into no consideration the people who are on the ground living in those places. So uh, he does go back and forth with uh, with Canadian and American history uh, at different times throughout the lectures as well. And I'm evidence that those borders get entrenched in all sorts of society. So uh, education, for one. Mm-hmm. I just said I don't have any uh, specialization in, the Amer- in American history, but, you know, we're talking about just, like, history of the continent and the land. We're not talking about, yeah. So. Ancient states. But it gets entrenched. It does. Maybe we'll even talk about it again when we're talking in our next podcast about monuments. Ooh. And, oh. uh, yeah. Foreshadowing. Yes, I like absolutely. it. Talking about what we took away from this. And I think oh, right. the biggest thing that I took away, he started the first the lecture with it, is that, you know, the truth about stories is that stories are all we really are. Yeah. And... I think that really resonated with me and as I was listening to him and as he, you know, continued on with his lectures, I think I kept going back to this point that everything comes back to a story that is told and how much those stories then shape society and culture and history just and like when he was talking about uh, like creation stories and he was at one point he was kind of juxtaposing and creating a dichotomy between uh 
Native American creation stories and Christian creation stories and how those stories are kind of the foundation for how, what our values are and what our society has been built around and how in the end what we are today is because of stories that we've told and that our ancestors have told. And, um, and, I, and I also began to question a lot about but like truth too and like what is truth and going back to the green grass running water what I liked about that is he was questioning my truths a lot he was challenging what I always thought was truth and that can be disarming for people and it can be alarming and challenging but I really I really appreciate that uh, that approach to to everything really I know it's like a really big meta thing but <laughs> that's what I kept going back to this existential questions I was asking when listening to the lectures. The part that held my attention the most was also in this similar section where he was talking about the two different creation stories, but then afterwards he revealed how he presented them. Mm-hmm. And as an interpreter, we often talk about style and how you tell stories. And it really made me realize a story that's told with a bit of silliness and humor often isn't taken as seriously. And and his his reference was that First People's creation stories have a little bit of silliness, I guess, or some, sometimes, or he at least told his that particular story with silliness. And so traditionally governments don't take, or governments and people and the church and, and so on, don't take them as seriously as... Uh, authoritarian stories like in Genesis and he read specifically from the King James version of the Bible that uh, uses these and those and those and blah 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 and it sounds a lot more authoritarian and real and uh, something that deserves reverence and respect um, compared to fun stories about you know the otter bringing up mud and be like oh I'm out of breath mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing mm-hmm. so um, it, it's kind of similar to how we treat historical characters at the museum because we do want people to be we have to find this uh, balance between entertainment and information and education and sometimes we try to find some humor in some of these stories so a lot of the times when I'm talking about William Hamilton Merritt's service in the war of 1812 we try to find some humor because you know who wants to hear about red coats and blue coats and lines and guns and all the technical details we can talk about sort of the humor that came out of some of those situations but it doesn't change the fact that these these are young guys you know trying to kill each other in, in the forest in Niagara so it's sort of like, you know, what stories, how you tell stories and the tone that you use and, and the style that you use to tell them can change the impact of them, can change how people uh, receive that information and what they think about that information, what they think about the person that you're trying to tell them about. Definitely. I think, I know as a public historian, I think it's really important when we're telling these histories and these stories to make that that personal connection. I think in the ways that we tell these histories, I find people usually perk up when you when they suddenly can personally connect to it, whether it's, um, you know, a, a family connection or something like. I find that especially with local history, of course, but that's the history that people find connected to, and like, oh, that actually does affect my life and my family and the way I think about things. Yeah, I think that uh, um, it it makes a story more human and relatable. Most people don't speak like uh, a scholarly text every single second of the day. And, you know, when people interact amongst each other, they interact in a a way that can be more lighthearted and more fun, a little bit more fun than, 
you know, reading the dictionary to <laughs> each other. Um, and so I think... About, I love reading the dictionary. <laughs> so I agree. I think that trying to... Um, to add some levity is sometimes a great way to uh, uh, to take a story to uh, a, a spot that is more relatable. Because sometimes you lose people with the, the history. You know, you get the glazed over look. You know you're losing people um, when you start talking about stats and um, places they've never been or heard of and um, politics they don't know, people they don't know. And so you want to try to uh, to make it so that they can actually understand and relate. And always with a certain style and whether it's like humor or on the opposite end, you know, sadness, emotion, that kind of thing. Because linking it to humans who aren't robots requires some sort of emotion and, and we want them to appreciate what kind of stories that the collection holds in our daily sort of mission that requires some sort of emotion. And I think that's what the power of story has over uh, a textbook, which we sometimes have stories. But uh, yeah, the power of a story is is great. You're never going to remember everything someone said. And you'll you'll remember maybe half of what someone does, but you're always going to remember how you felt. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might not remember that particular story. I'm terrible at remembering stories, as you've heard throughout <laughs> this podcast, me trying to recount Colonel Mustard. Um, but uh, and you might not, you know, you might not remember the history of William Hamilton Merritt in the War of 1812, but you'll remember how you felt when you heard the story. You know, sort of that little bit of connection is is all it takes to sort of grow some sort of appreciation for what these people went through, whether it's whoever the story is about. And I think that's an important role of museums, right? Museums shouldn't be spaces where people go to just for those facts and just for those definitive truths. Uh, They go to museums to discover and to find those connections. And I think it's important as our job to open that, those spaces, to open our museum spaces for that discovery and for conversation and debate and to ask questions. And by telling stories through these objects, we're opening avenues for people to have those conversations. And I think that's a really important role that we have. We're beyond just fact tellers and object showers. You don't just show an object and just leave it there. You know, we try and um, interpret it and encourage our visitors to kind of make their own connections to the artifacts that we have on display too. When was the last time maybe, I guess, well, it's tough because like even art museums, you know, you're going to see a tangible piece. You're going to see the, the actual paint on the canvas. But what's more exciting is sometimes, sometimes, the story of the artist painting that work or the story of the person in the painting or, or you know, the piece of fruit was picked, you know, in a particular place or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, like, w- you, when was the last time you went to a museum and were really excited about, you know, seeing a table for the fact that it's a table? <laughs> You're more excited to see the table for the fact that, you know, Bob used that table <laughs> to write this particular letter, which mm-hmm. ended up going to somebody you know like isn't that a great story (laughs) Bob I think that that's the segue between what uh, Thomas King is saying in the Massey lectures about stories and about how important stories are and how stories um, are different for each person and each person's uh, the way they tell it the way they hear it um, is different and you take from a story what you want I think the segue from that to what we do here in the museum is is pretty close so our uh, mission here at the museum if we distill it down to the basics is we tell stories through artifacts and the whole point of having a collection of artifacts is so that you can take those artifacts and 
tell those stories that relate to them. Uh, and so I, kind of, I really enjoyed Thomas King because the storytelling aspect of history is really what we do in museums. For, like this is the difference between what a museum does and what a history textbook does is we're telling story, these stories of these people, these places, you know, the factual stories, but we're telling it through the use of artifacts and uh, photos, objects. Things. It shows you the, sure. the the power of emotion because yeah. Josephine Bonaparte's cool. I don't know if I would be as excited or especially if you just showed me a red chair. I'd be like, oh, cool, you know, sure. cool, you know, early 19th century chair <laughs> that's red from Europe. Great. I've seen many of those. But looking through my photo album, woo, exciting! <laughs> yeah, yeah, great, yeah. But then you go ahead and connect all those emotions to it, and it's like, whoa, mm-hmm. this object is suddenly way more important than all the other early early nineteenth century chairs that exist all around the world, or whatever you mm-hmm. know. So it's that it's that whole idea of like, you know, here's a feather pen, and this feather pen is super cool. It's white. It's uh, this about yay long. You can't really see in podcast land how long it is, but whatever. Um, and it's really cool, and it's old, and they used to write with these pens uh, because they didn't have ballpoint pens. They'd dip it in ink and blah, blah, blah. This is the pen that George Washington used to sign the Declaration of Independence or whatever. I don't know mm-hmm. if he signed it, but mm-hmm. it's that, that kind of um, idea. It's like all of a sudden, all of this emotion is attached into this object. For me, the... Per, people have this perspective as, as of a museum as like a, a warehouse of stuff. But that stuff isn't meaningful until we tell our stories. And so, like, people are always surprised when they see our stuff and when they see the <laughs> not to say it, but like, I have to say that that is totally what floats my boat when it comes to going to museums and especially historic sites. Mm-hmm. Like, I love going to a historic site, uh, and this is kind of like a little history nerd in me that. I'll give you a little little story about this is that uh, when we went to France, we went, uh, I was so excited to go to France. I'd never been there, but studied it in history for years, wanted to see these places I'd read about, and I'm a huge fan of Josephine Bonaparte. We go to her house, it's on the outskirts of Paris, and in her home, there are actually pieces of furniture that she owned, and for some reason, one piece of furniture just spoke to me, not because it was like a cool looking chair, although it was a fairly cool looking chair, uh, but in her her bedroom boudoir kind of room, there's this red chair with uh, J on it, embroidered on the seat of it. And all I could think about was Josephine Bonaparte actually sat in this chair. <laughs> I was just so excited about it because... I could feel that this history was alive right here and, and right in that place. And uh, and to hear the, um, you know, to already know the story about the home and about her life there. And then to see the actual object, it connected the story to the thing. And that really floated my boat. I was so excited, sadly, about this chair that Josephine Bonaparte sat on. But why is this a shock that museums are more than a warehouse of stuff that we actually have stuff that means something to the community? It always seems like people prepare themselves for a museum visit to be bored and to be only one way receiving of information and oh great I have to go to a museum not everybody so where's the where's the failure then or over time I guess museums have obviously changed quite a bit Um, and the role of museums has changed are people really surprised that we tell stories 
I think people are surprised sometimes that a, an object has a story behind it. I think sometimes people think that they're going to a museum to uh, to see valuable old things because that's what this whole original cabinets of curiosities were all about. It was about, uh, you know, the Mona Lisa or, um, you know, a gold chalice or something like that. And those things do have value as just beautiful objects and not necessarily the story behind them. But from the perspective or from my perspective as a museum person in a community museum, the objects in our collection are only important because of the stories that they tell. They, while they may, some of them may be valuable, that doesn't necessarily make them important to our community and why we collect them. The reason why we collect them is because they actually tell the story of our community. Um, I think there is some challenge to telling stories of communities within our community that put less emphasis on objects to tell their history than on oral history, for example, for whatever reason that is. I think museums are challenged by that, but I think that's like our thing that we have to figure out as we move forward and as we're going to evolve uh, with communities in the future. Like the small house movement is so popular, the decluttering movement is so popular now. What is the museum going to look like in 150 years when we're looking to, to tell the story of 2017's generation? Is there going to be an object to tell that story hopefully there will be some objects because you know we all still like things mm -hmm. but um but will the way that we're telling those stories evolve because of just the different way people want to connect themselves to to their story it's a really interesting question and what i like about the way that museums are going and a, mu a way that our museum the st Catherine museum is going is you know we're opening up more platforms and spaces for community members to come and tell their own stories too right um and I think that's important is not, we don't have to be the only storytellers in the community. We can open up space for the community to tell stories too. And I think that that moment of sharing and making those connections again, I think that's what our value lies in. And so I'm, I'm really excited to, to see where museums go, especially, you know, considering if we're moving away from objects. Yeah. Who and, knows? And where we're the authority on history. Who yeah. says that we have to be the the rule makers or the king makers about what stories we tell and, or and that gate, kind of yeah. thing. Right? Or the like, gatekeepers. Or gatekeepers or whatever. Yeah. Keeper. Any sort of keeper. Um, <laughs> keeper of the key, housekeeper. It's it's cool to sort of democratize that, but it doesn't devalue the emotions and the appreciation that you're going to get from it. Because again, I think it's, maybe I put too much emphasis on it, but like when people leave here, what are they going to remember? How deep the canal is? Um, unless they're super, super, super excited about how deep the canal is, like Kathy was excited about Josephine Bonaparte's chair. <laughs> That's like, it, you know, it floats their boat, you know, to be on the nose with that, that reference. But you know, they're going to remember, you know, wow, look at me, individual human, next to this massive engineering project. Yeah, And exactly. how, how do you feel as human next to something so massive that has so many uh stories connected to it and so many meanings connected to it mm -hmm. so like you know what are you going to remember when you leave mm -hmm. the stats or how you felt to wrap it all back together i think that that's pretty much what thomas king is saying throughout the massey lectures is that um stories very humanizing but they're very personal as well and they 
they're as personal to the person telling the story as it is personal to the person hearing the story. Uh, and they're all different in different ways. And so I really enjoyed that about the Massey lectures to kind of segue us back to what we do here as it made me really think about what we do here as museums and how we uh, try to honor the stories behind the things that we uh, care for here as well. To listen to all five lectures in his series about storytelling, you can visit the footnotes to this blog. We all recommend listening. (laughs) I recommend listening to the first episode particularly, but we all recommend listening to um, all five lectures before we meet for our super cool book club on September 19th. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Museum Chat Live. It's not too late to join in the discussion. If you'd like to join our Books and Brews book club, make sure to check out our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, for all the information you need to register. The book club is a really neat way to explore some great literature and the local history in your own community. But don't take our word for it. Take a listen to what Jack, a Books and Brews regular, says about the series. My favorite part about Books and Brews, it connects the uh, museum with the community. Uh, and I think that's very important. Uh, you know, because with the last, the last uh, Books and Brews season, I guess, uh, you know, we, we really talked about things that connected with, with the community. And even with, with this uh, current season of Books and Brews, uh, it, this current book also plays in with the history of yeah. St. Catharines and the community. So I think that's, that's, my, that's my favorite part. We'd also like to thank our Books and Brews partners, the faculty of the Department of History at Brock University and Mate Cafe and Lounge. Our next episode of Museum Chat Live will be dedicated to the very current and important issues surrounding monuments and place names for historical figures. After a violent protest in Charlottesville a few weeks ago and the renaming of Langevin Block, we're going to look into how history is told through monuments monuments and what museums can do to contribute to resolutions. We'll also be joined by a professor of public history at Carleton University named Paul Litt, who is also one of Sarah's former professors. So that'll be an interesting discussion as well. Don't miss that episode. This episode of Museum Chat Live was produced by Adrian Petrie, Sarah Nixon, and Kathleen Powell. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the City of St. Catharines.